Hi and welcome to the podcast Fenced In. You are here with me, Ben and Chris, as usual. For our regular listeners, you know who we are. For those that are new, myself and Chris are both uh, GB International Fencers and also coach and student. Chris is now going to tell you about something special we have for you today. This week's episode features John Southfield, who is the head coach of Truro Fencing Club and former GB Sabrua. Um, and as I discovered last week on Reddit, apparently in America, Sabreurs are called Sabrists, which uh, <laughs> I didn't, Weird. I wasn't really aware of. Yeah. And I actually questioned that and somebody came back and said, no, no, that's right. And there we go. So we're here with John. And actually, instead of getting some of the details wrong, I'm going to let John tell us all about himself and the amazing things he's done, because uh, I want to know more. Yeah, I'm the uh, head coach of True Fencing Club down in Cornwall. Um... I've uh, been head coach there for 13 years now. That's about half of my time is spent kind of in that role. Uh, and the rest of my time as a, as a full-time coach, I spend as the ADP lead coach for Sabre. That's the athlete development program, uh, which is a British fencing program for young cadets through to under 23s. So I spend a lot of time working on uh, that project, uh, helping with organization, delivery of camps and training and a lot of meetings about uh, something we're trying to develop at the moment is a, a kind of toolkit for different areas of fencing, psychology, strength conditioning, coaching in Sabre, Fall and Leppe and so on. And then I'm also the GB senior Sabre coach. So I travel to World Cups and championships and so on with the, the men's and women's Sabre teams. So that's my eight days a week taken up. Busy, yeah. busy, busy indeed, eh? Absolutely. Um, how long have you been in the GB coach role? I was first the senior coach for GB in 2011 till uh, I think beginning of 2013 and then had a gap. Uh, we had the world-class program and Pierre Guichot was brought in as the national coach. Um, and then after the world-class program, I took on the role again until now. So on and off for nine years, but sort of about probably six of those years. Oh, cool. So that I find that really interesting, actually, because whenever there are events on which obviously they haven't been for a while but world cups and and um grand prix obviously i follow the foil but i really follow the sabreurs as well and as a unit as a team they definitely seem to be on an upwards trajectory and seem to be really jumping into the next level and they're losing to the top teams now in the kind of last eight last 16 by really really small margins and obviously individually they're really getting very far they're making 16s on a regular basis uh, i just find it really impressive that as a group they can pull themselves up with the right support around them i mean it's a number of different things i mean you slightly overstated how far we are down the line we we're making regular 32s as individuals we've had a few 16s and yeah we, we're putting in some strong team performances but i think it's a number of different things one is we've we've now got a good combination of youth and experience in the team so we've got uh, James Honeybone, Curtis Miller, who were in their late 20s, who've got a lot of experience behind them. Um, and then we've got the younger guys, Will Deary and JJ Webb, who are the two younger guys in the team, really talented young fencers in their early 20s. They're all very kind of passionate, motivated guys. And I think, you know, it's just kind of the right team has come together at the right time. And hopefully we can continue to, to make that progress because I think we're nowhere near realizing our potential at the moment. You know, we've we've really threatened to topple teams in the top four in the world in the last 18 months, but we haven't quite done it. We've beaten teams in the top 10 in the world, but not the top four. So, you know, that's the next goal is to convert those kind of 45-42, 45-44 defeats into, into victories, which, as you can see, you know, it's not the score lines are, are tight. So the, the difference is very small between us and those big teams. For the listeners and, and for people out there that, that don't know John personally, John is a very cool, calm, collected guy. And I've never had the, the pleasure to be coached by John because obviously I'm a, I'm a foilist, not a, not a Sabura, even though John is, has, has coached in all three weapons. But I think to kind of give a, a little anecdote to kind of help people understand quite how cool, calm and collected John is. I remember we were at, uh, at the European Champs uh, in Novisad and uh, the men's foil team were fighting to try and qualify to get into the into the top eight. And um, I, we, we, we were against Hungary at the time. And John comes over and he stands behind the box. It went to 44 all with Hungary. And bear in mind, this is Olympic year and this is, a, this is in the Olympic qualifying period. And there's a great photo both before and after. And there's a photo of all the men's foilists in the box looking distraught at the fact that it's 44 all and this is make or break. And there's, there's a picture of John just stood behind arms folded, just just looking on, very cool, calm and collected. And then, brilliantly, the last hit was scored by James Davis and everybody erupted. And then there's a great second photo of us throwing things, flying out the box, that kind of stuff. 
and just John very cool, calm, collected, just going in midway through a clap. It was beautiful. And I think that that kind of explains exactly kind of John's uh, whole demure towards uh, towards fencing. He is a high level coach and very cool, calm and collected. But it must be quite strange coming from what we've just talked about with, you know, traveling the world, training and competing and, and coaching some of these top athletes. And yet now we're obviously in lockdown and this is a really difficult time for us all. How has everything changed from that to lockdown now? What are you doing at the moment to make life feel as normal as possible? Well, there's two things. First, I want to pick up on your previous point, which is that there's a lot of sabre referees around the world would disagree with you that I'm well collected. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question, you know, and, and there's different things. Personally, there's different things that I'm doing as a coach and different things for different age groups and different teams. So it's a wide variety, really. I think the first mission as coaches that we had was to try and keep the athletes engaged, try and make them feel like there was a purpose to them carrying on and training and still being focused on fencing to an extent. And then the second kind of after a couple of weeks of that sort of sitting back and thinking, what is the purpose of training? What are we trying to achieve here? Now, under normal circumstances, our senior teams that have been preparing for European championships right now, being ready to go out and fence the Europeans um, in Belarus. But obviously they're not doing that. So is there really a good reason for them to be doing a load of fencing training right now? When with, you know, realistic view, probably the end of this year is the earliest they might be fencing at the high level. So actually, we're just looking at this as a really long pre-season, a pre-pre-season almost, keeping people's conditioning to a reasonable level, keeping everyone injury free, keeping them kind of mentally fresh, but not doing a great deal of fencing related stuff. Because right now you don't need to do that. You'll just get a bit of overkill. With the younger fences where you can still say, right, guys, we can develop certain aspects of your footwork and just develop certain aspects of your hitting technique. You know, the things that we can really continue to enhance from a fencing perspective, we're doing much more fencing related training with those younger fencers. And there are some seniors that want to stay engaged in fencing type activities. You know yourself, Ben, like some, some athletes prefer just to step back completely after the Europeans or the worlds from fencing and just put down their foil or say we're epe and not look at it for six weeks. Some people like to just keep doing a little lesson now and again, a bit of footwork, some hitting exercises, even the odd sparring. Mm. You know, so Caitlin Maxwell, who's our number one woman sabra who I've coached now since she was, I think, nine years old. She's now 21. She prefers to keep her lessons going pretty much all year round, just mm. have a few short breaks. So even in the downtime, she feels like she doesn't want her technique to drop a level. She's a very technical fencer. So she still has technical lessons. And she's doing all the technical Zoom training that I'm doing with the younger fencers. But some of the guys like, say, James Honeybone, who I've been coaching even longer than that, he prefers to put down his saber, walk away, and then come back fresh later on. So when you get to the senior level you, the athletes develop their own way of working and they start to know what's best for them best for their body best for their mind and as a coach the trick is to work within that while still making people push the boundaries a little bit completely and actually what, what's great to see there is that you know you're you're mentioning kind of the the cadets and younger right up to, to senior level and i suppose there's obviously quite a stark contrast you know chris and i've been talking about this at, at quite some length in, in a few of the, the previous episodes mainly people understanding themselves and, and where they're at in their career. And certainly I know as a, as a slightly older athlete now that I have to look after my body and I know that volume has to you know, be backed off a little bit at certain points. But certainly now this is a great time to get the volume in, but mm. not necessarily fencing because actually we don't know what we're preparing for. So it's great times to be doing lots of physical training. You know, I, I, took, a, I took a break, I took a small gap and then was like, right, this is the time to start loading up on S&C now, but doing... No, nowhere near as much fencing as I usually would, but probably a bit like um, uh, with some some of the, some of the other athletes you mentioned. I am doing a little bit of technical work just to keep my eye in, just to kind of feel like there is something going on there. Mm. So it's quite a stark contrast from the youngsters to, to, to the more to the more senior athletes. And I know that recently you've you've just written a, a document for British fencing about kind of how to deliver coaching sessions online. So I'm, I'm assuming there is going to be quite two different uh, sessions that you're running for both the senior athletes and some of the younger ones? Well, actually, the senior guys are pretty much doing their own program, so not running sessions for them specifically. So they're doing their own S&C. We've got a sort of regular meetup with them, so we have an overview of what they're doing, just catching up on, you know, the kind of well-being side of stuff, but also what they're doing in terms of physical training. Uh, some of the guys are kind of doing footwork and engaging in some fencing activities. Some are just doing strength conditioning work. So actually, we're not delivering direct sessions at this stage for the seniors. So that will probably come in another month to six weeks time. But with the younger fences, it's very much we're doing daily Zoom sessions, an hour to an hour and a half every day, balance between strength and conditioning, 
technical training, footwork, um, kind of um, mobilization, activation stuff. So a real range of activity to try and keep it fresh and keep them interested. And we've also been lucky that for the Truro Fencing Club group that I'm coaching, we have what we call a high performance program, which is, again, young cadets through to older juniors mostly, plus a couple of seniors. Those guys, we've been lucky enough to be able to bring in some guest coaches. So we've had Alberto Pellegrini from Italy, um, one of the Italian team. We've had Max Hartung, the world number two Sabrera, came and did like an interview and talked with the guys about his training and what motivates him and his background of fencing and the way that he thinks on the piste. We've just been lucky to be able to bring athletes in. Philemon Barrier from France came in and did a session for us. Then I did a kind of return session for him for Escrime à la Maison, which is the French online training sessions that are being run. So yeah, it's, it's just to try and keep it fresh and interesting. We've done sports psychology sessions. We're doing a yoga session next week with a yoga coach. So yeah, it's just for those younger fencers, a real holistic kind of view of different training ideas and exercises to just keep them focused and interested and keep it all fresh. And we've had a couple of the seniors drop into those sessions. So Will Deary has dropped in a couple of times. Caitlin Maxwell is doing nearly all of them. But that's their choice if they want to drop in and out and just kind of keep linked into the sport. And, and, you know, and also it's a nice social thing. People staying in touch with each other. We can't see each other, right? So it's nice to have a bit of banter on there and you know, people kind of bringing up the sort of in-jokes and you know, it's, it's good fun as well. Yeah, definitely. That so that sounds really cool, and like there's a lot going on, which has obviously come out of necessity. How do you think that will continue going forward once club training resumes, once people can get back into the cells and spar and have their lessons and do stuff as groups? Do you reckon any of that new work that that you've discovered, so bringing other people in, doing video sessions, do you think any of that will continue? Hundred percent, yes. We've already planned to continue an additional S and C session on Zoom every week. We're already planning to Zoom our uh, club training footwork and strength conditioning sessions to our fences. This, I'm talking from a Truro perspective now, from our fences, from the Truro Fencing Club who've gone off to university or training in other places. So for those of you who don't know about Truro, it's, it's principally a sabre club, but it's always been a three-weapon club. We've produced fences in all weapons, but our high-performance program is a sabre program, and we have a, a good volume of cadet and junior and successful fences in that group, and a lot of the British senior team have come out of that training program and are kind of born and brought up and trained up through that program but a lot of those guys some of them live in london they're at university you know we've got one of our top guys in edinburgh one in york we've got guys all over the place so even in the us so from that point of view it gives us a chance to keep them more closely connected into the club still so we're looking now to run a weekly zoom snc session for everyone and then, as I said, to zoom out the footwork and strength conditioning exercises live so those guys can just join in training as they would if they were at home. Yeah, so that's really interesting because obviously one of the areas that I think coaches and clubs struggle with is you get a fencer quite young. You know, you, you work on them for years and years and at a certain point at university and then after they, you know, they move away, they may come back, they may not. But there's a period of time where you lose touch with them. So that sounds like it might bridge some of that i'm quite interested in how truro became a land of fencing considering its geography and how far removed it is from other fencing communities in parts of the uk the shetlands for example is another one that's always fascinated me you know there's there you get quite a few fences at the high level in in gb that represent shetlands and same with truro but obviously as you said truro is a three-weapon club and it's high performance um i'm just wondering how that came about it's it's a long story but it's it's quite an interesting one i mean for those of you who don't know Truro, which I'm sure is a tiny minority, you've all have heard of that town, right? It's we all know about the Black Breaches. Yeah, oh, yeah. Blue. Midnight Blue, Midnight Blue. It's, uh, <laughs> Truro is a town of about 18,000 people in Cornwall, which is a very rural community. Cornwall is the longest county in England and has a population of about half a million. So it's a very sparsely populated county and with a few towns of around 20,000 population. It's unfortunate for London that it is 300 miles from Truro, but, you know, we can't help that. And that was always our Truro perspective. You know, everyone's like, oh, you're so far away. It's like, no, you're so far away. We're, this is where you guys should be. And <laughs> I, I moved to Cornwall when my dad retired there when I was 10 years old. So we're talking, I was nine years old, 1982, back in, I've given my age away now, 47 on Tuesday I was. So 1982, I moved to Cornwall. And then I started fencing when I was 15. And the local fencing club at that time had two or three old guys who were kind of classical foilists, um, a couple of school kids, pretty much just like a really small rural recreational 
club that you would expect in that kind of place. And we met on a Tuesday night, 7.30 p.m. for an hour and a half, once a week. That was it. Membership was 30 quid a year, if I recall. <laughs> wow, how times have changed. <laughs> Absolutely. But it had no aspiration or particular ambition to be anything other than just to have a bit of fencing in a little town in Cornwall. And then I was very lucky that around the time I started, a guy called Richard Bonehill moved down to Cornwall, who was then around the age I am now, so in his kind of mid-40s. And he was a decent domestic sabreur. He wasn't kind of a top level. He not represented Great Britain, but he was a good domestic sabreur of the old kind of steam sabre school. And, but he was also a, quite an inspirational guy. He was a stuntman and a fight choreographer, and he worked on the Star Wars films and Highlander and The Man in the Iron Mask. And he worked with, you know, big stars like Uma Thurman and um, Pierce Bros and people like that. And that was kind of his main job. And uh, he was quite an inspirational guy. And he basically took on the job of coaching me, kind of learning to be a fencing coach, trying to teach me a bit about fencing. And he kind of inspired me in, in the sport of fencing. And then I carried on till I was 19. Wasn't particularly good at fencing. I was like in the top 50, maybe domestically. Never made the junior squad or anything like that. And then I pretty much gave up for three years, three and a half years, um, because I was also a musician. So at that time, I was playing music full time for a living. I dropped out of education when I was 16 and went and played the guitar in bars and then eventually ended up being a full time musician, touring, set up a music agency with my brother, who's also a full time musician. So I had a mortgage by then. So those are the days when you could buy a house when you were 20. <laughs> oh, how had, times have changed. <laughs> they have, yeah. <laughs> and that was, that was also 30 quid, by the way. Um, <laughs> it was a really kind of complicated time in my life. And then when I was 22, 23, I came back to fencing because I saw a bunch of people doing a fencing exhibition in the courtyard of a bistro where I was playing the guitar. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go and fence again. And then I really threw myself into the local club. I went back and we started to fence two nights a week. I started to do some coaching. And then at some point, me and Richard sat there and we're like, you know what? We could make a thing out of this. We could make this like a really good club. We could bring more people in. We could develop it. And we put a little plan in place. We're like, this is our five-year plan. And we wanted to get 40 members. We wanted to raise the standard of fencing. We wanted to enter a team for Excalibur, which was the inter-county competition. And we achieved all that in 18 months. So then we're like, okay, let's do another five-year plan that we can achieve in 18 months. <laughs> and we just continued to build and it just gained momentum. And I started to kind of get a bit better and do all the domestic events. And eventually I got selected for the World Cup squad. Richard got selected for the GB veterans team and he won the World Veteran Championships for the 50 plus category. And it just started to become a snowball. And then some names will pop up. People, you, some of the older guys might remember like Al Jupp and Mikey Rogers, guys who were good level fencers, who fenced at World Cup level. And we just built some momentum. And then around 2006, Richard decided he'd had enough of being head coach at the club. And he said, all right, I'm going to step down, but I really want you to take this on. And at this time, again, how times have changed. We had just done this all for nothing. We both had jobs. We were coaching. We were running around the country. We were doing some school sessions. We'd basically done it all for nothing. And I said, well, I'll take it on, but only if we turn this into a, the best professional club in the UK. So we sat down with our members. We're like, okay, guys, we want to turn this into the best professional club in the UK. It's going to cost a lot of money. Your membership fees are going to go up triple. And we're going to increase membership. We're going to have professional coaches. We're going to take fencing to thousands of kids. And that's what we did. Everyone came on board and went, went along with it. And then, you know, I'd, I'd been coaching in schools for a while. And we'd had fencers coming through then, like, obviously, like, James Honeybone was my first big success story as a fencer and incidentally a little anecdote for you James has a record that will never be broken in British fencing which is that he won the under 14 BYCs at the age of 11 but now you're not allowed to enter until you're 12 so <laughs> <laughs> he'll be very pleased that I told you that one so then and then we sort of then the next generation after James were guys that you'll know you know on the circuit now like Michael Clark and um and then younger guys again, Will Deary and Josh Maxwell, and then younger ones again, like Maria Chart, Caitlin Maxwell, and so on. And we had this, we started to build this kind of momentum. And then um, we were lucky enough to have a commercial sponsor for three years. And that's when we brought over a coach called Peter Froelich, who's one of the world's top Sabre coaches. And that's the first time then, by then I was 36. And that was the first time I really started to have regular fencing lessons as a one-to-one -one lessons as a as a fencer because all this time I was head coach I was also fencing in the British World Cup squad so I was training every morning and then going off and coaching at schools in the afternoon and going off and coaching at the club in the evening and that's a very brief summary 
and we we did a project called Fence Cornwall, where we myself and the four other coaches who were working with me at the time, a guy called Paul Kane, who was a four coach, um, Maxime McCombie, who was coaching Sabre, who now works for British Fencing in London, Mikey Rogers and myself, and then a little bit later on, Chris Buxton, who moved down to Cornwall. We went out and we we delivered fencing sessions free of charge to 5,000 kids in Cornwall. Now that's 1% of the entire Cornish population. That's amazing stuff. And what, what, a, what, a, what I love about this is, is just kind of the way you were able to manage everything you had the fact that you were still fencing and competing you know and and doing this as well in fact actually you kind of share something in common with both both chris and i so when i when i left i left school at 16 years old to basically become a full-time fencer and there were so many teachers out there that were saying you know ben it's the wrong thing to do don't do that blah blah you're throwing your life away etc and some of them might still even say that now but the fact of the matter is that it's so amazing to hear somebody else that kind of left school early and was like you know not necessarily to to follow fencing as, as a complete passion but maybe it might not have been something for you and then actually you you wanted to find a, a different path and then conversely you know chris i'm sure won't mind me saying that you know his his first selection for the senior international squad for great britain came at a slightly later stage of, of, of his career so with me part of uh, fencers club london and you know, being involved in the club and also doing a bit of coaching there whilst whilst training. It's just really interesting to hear how your story has also evolved through that. Yeah, and I think a lot of my, my fencing as a fencer was very much self-taught. I kind of, I was flailing around a bit on the circuit, getting okay domestic results, nothing amazing, hanging around the top 20. And then I, I struck up a friendship with Chris Buxton, who taught me a huge amount about fencing you know, the, the sort of slightly more cerebral level stuff, not just throwing yourself up and down the piece, but, you know, how to set people up and how to prepare in the middle of the piece and how to find time and how to control distance. And, you know, we ended up becoming really good mates and eventually colleagues in coaching. And then we used to host a competition called the Cornwall Cup, which was a, a senior World Cup. We had a, instead of selecting, because the host nation can enter more fences than a visiting nation. So we could enter, I think, up to possibly 24, I think the number was. So the top eight were always selected. And then there were 16 places available through a qualification competition. So the day before the Cornwall Cup, we would have this kind of effectively a domestic open. Everyone else except the top eight would rock up. And everyone who got into the top 16 would then fence the next day in the Senior World Cup. So the first year I did that, I didn't qualify. The second year I qualified for the, the Senior World Cup competition. So this was like me as a 29-year-old going off. Never done anything of this level ever before. I was just about in the top 16 in the UK, maybe 15th in the ranking or something. This is like a big new world. And it wasn't by any means a big World Cup tournament. It was the days when you would have a competition with sometimes with like 80 fences in. So I rocked up, won four fights in the pool, got a bite to the 64, had a guy called Dom Flood in the 64 who was in the top four in the UK. And then I beat him and got in the 32, lost a close match to one of the Korean team. And then I suddenly went from there because of the points I got, I went up to fifth in the ranking. And then wow. suddenly I'm in the mix for all the, all the World Cup competitions. So I start immediately after that, I started to do the World Cup circuit. And then I got selected for the European Championships that year. And it was like suddenly from nowhere, I was just like the, the Cornish kid flailing around. I had a ponytail back then, by the way. I think I, was, I remember that. I mean, yeah, mate, that, those were the days, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure we can dig up some pictures from somewhere. Um, I don't want you to do that. Yeah. Uh, I've got a great photo of James, aged, I don't know, probably 10, doing like a lunge at me with the point, me standing there with a ponytail for like the local paper when he got selected for some kid's thing. <laughs> but yeah, so that suddenly I kind of jumped, had this huge jump from being like a reasonable domestic fencer to suddenly being out on the World Cup circuit. And then I stayed in the top five, basically, pretty much for the rest of my fencing career after that. Yeah, and that's, that was kind of how it happened. And I pretty much taught myself, you know, and I went out to the World Cups and realized what I was doing and what a lot of Brits were doing wasn't really proper saber fencing. And we needed to, to try and change stuff. And I tried to watch other coaches and tried to watch other fencers and try and change my fencing a bit, which is very difficult to do without many sparring partners and without a coach. What I find quite interesting about that is that for a long time, you had a hunger and a desire to learn, but also that experiencing and feeling can count for a lot obviously technical work is very important but i don't i don't think enough people realize that feeling for a hit or feeling for a moment can really take you very far and often when you know we've all lost to people we've all we've all seen 
offences that we kind of don't really rate or other people kind of talk down about and they say no they're just a bit awkward they're a bit weird and actually what what that really translates to you know you're saying that but they're winning and yeah. they feel yeah, the yeah. moment very well they know when yeah. they know what a hit feels like they know when to go for it and that's really important because you can do all the technical work in the world but if you don't have that grit and the ability to create opportunities then it won't go anywhere absolutely i think the one thing i, I never had very good technique clearly because of my fencing background my footwork was kind of rudimentary technically but i was a decent athlete so i kind of could move quite fast over short distance and i was relatively big and scary so that was okay I was, you know, <laughs> no, you're a pussy um but yeah seriously my my kind of way of scoring hits at world level was that i was very good at predicting what people were thinking and what they would do next so i started to get a lot of feeling about what the next hit was and and then you can find a way to set people up for that action and I was never particularly successful at world level. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to talk about my fencing career. But I think given the background I had and the kind of age I was when I started World Cups, I did okay eventually. And it took me seven or eight years on the circuit to really feel what to do. And I was 38 when I did my last World Cup. And I didn't feel by any means at that point I'd stopped improving or learning. I felt I could have done another couple of seasons and maybe got a couple of okay results. But the way that I would win any fights really would be getting inside the head of the other person and working out what they're doing and finding patterns in their fencing and I think that's the interesting thing I've learned in the last three or four years as a coach is that coaches often value the thing in themselves in their fences that they didn't have themselves mm. and for me the thing I really love is beautiful technique like perfect technique and when you see someone kind of with real balance and poise and great footwork and amazing handwork, you kind of Montano style, Silagi style, Carline in women's fencing. And you see that. And for me, that is just the, the, almost like the aesthetic is just as important as, as the fact that they're effective. And I think that's because obviously I didn't have that as a fencer. And I see that in other coaches. So Chris Buxton, who I mentioned earlier, who's a brilliant coach who produced a lot of good fencers like Will Deary is basically, you know, Chris's project. I'm sure Will won't mind me saying that when he won the England Under-11 Championships, Chris moved down to Cornwall that year. And I said to, to Chris, please, will you coach this guy? He's like the worst national champion ever. <laughs> no, no one that bad at fencing has ever won the nationals. But the one thing Deary had, firstly, he's, big he had, feet. he's got really he's got big feet. Big feet. He's got massive legs, but he's, <laughs> he was so hungry as a kid and he would work and work and work. And he raised his level every year. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of respect for that. And the guy is awesome now but at the time he was quite a big clumsy kid and uh i don't know where i'm going with this story and i've completely lost track <laughs> no, Deary, well, is, Deary is clumsy that's what i'm saying Deary is clumsy. <laughs> and, and for those that know Deary, he is a he's a lovable scary monster and and it's great to kind of hear john about a lot of the the, the what you've experienced in in your in your fencing career and i think you are a very analytical person and clearly what you do is is, is you take all of your experiences but you're very inquisitive and I think one of the things that I love about high level coaches is the fact that they're always curious they're always kind of hungry to learn and and it's really interesting the kind of story of, 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 of Truro and you would think that kind of such a small little town how is that ever going to kind of grow into this huge powerhouse of, of, of a same club that it is and it kind of for me it, it mirrors very nicely um, Frascati uh, fencing club um, in Italy which is multi-weapon, a bit like Truro. The wine is a lot better in Frascati, I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I can, I will, I will definitely, definitely, definitely take your word for that. Not that I've been out there drinking wine regularly, I've been out there training, but it's a very small region, um, just out, outskirts of, of Rome, and it is a multi-weapon uh, club. And actually, who would have thought that, you know, a lot of people would just kind of emigrate to this, this very small like almost rural town just on the outskirts of, of, of a major city but you know this is almost kind of Walthamstow to, to, to London it's quite far out it's not very easy to get to it's obviously a much better place than that but at the same time I'm trying to give the understanding that it's it's not very well connected and it's not very easy to get to so why would it have multiple Olympic champions and, and it's just the fact that they're Many people went there and they had a real professional idea and they kind of grew, grew with it. And the coaching staff were just hungry to learn more and get better. And now you have Danny Garozzo who trains their individual Olympic champion and a whole a whole row of, of, of seriously high level athletes from this very, very small town. And it's just grown because the culture of the club as well is about success and winning, but doing getting the success and winning through a very kind of learning mindset of kind of we want to make this better, we want to grow as a family, grow as a unit. And you suddenly see kind of that that explode. And, and, and it is when you walk in there, it feels like 
a family and, and they share everyone's successes, no matter how big or small they are. It just so happens that their big successes are as big as Olympic champions, which is which is incredible to see. And I suppose it's kind of a bit aching to, to, to how you kind of describe Truro, really. Well, it's a very flattering comparison, obviously. Um, but, you know, I think Truro's got a long way to go to achieve those levels. But at the same time, the kind of storyline is quite similar. And there are other clubs, you know, around Europe that you can see the same. Talmudbischofsheim was very similar. Small German town, smaller population, I think, even than Truro. You know, and that was started by one kind of entrepreneurial guy. And a lot of these these clubs in smaller towns, I think, are, are personality-led. Mm. So one, two or three people were passionate about it and built something and then it snowballed and then it kind of almost grew of its own accord. It wasn't planned out that it was going to end up like that. It was an, or, an organic process without sounding too wishy-washy about it. I think that's it. The personality is key in there as well. And, uh, and for the listeners that don't know John personally, you, you've always had a very good wit and you're, you know, you're, you're very easy to warm to. I think one of the first times, and I really, really hope this anecdote is correct, because if it's not, we're, we're going to have to cut the whole thing. But let's go with it anyway, right? So I remember seeing John the first time fencing at the National Championships. Now, I'm really hoping this is you, but I remember you losing a hit, or it, it should have been your hit, but you lost the hit. And the referee uh, called it against you and obviously didn't please you very well. And you looked at the referee and you took your finger and you pointed to what was on your breeches. And at the time, um, I believe John was sponsored by Specsavers. And you looked at the referee and pointed to the badge on his leg that said Specsavers. And all of the stadium erupted in laughter. Many athletes would have exploded, got really upset. I'm pretty sure it was the final national championships and I was looking at awe and these two Savage. monstrous titans going for each other. And yet he had the clarity of mind and the personality to go, do you know what? I'm going to make a joke out of this. I'm going to let it wash over me and go from there. And I just, it was the, for me, it was the example of a true gentleman and sportsman at the time with a little bit of wit. And I think that's probably what you've taken into your coaching career. Well, yeah, it was the semi-final. I never made the final. Oh, fine. I, okay. think, I think <laughs> I was fencing Alex O'Connell, if I remember rightly. I remember it quite I clearly. I have you know, like a lot of Sabreurs, I've overstepped the line a couple of times um, with referees. I think playing the referee is kind of part of the game of Sabre to an extent, you know, and it's, it's, it's knowing where the line is between playing the game. People call it gamesmanship, but that kind of sounds to me almost like verging on cheating. But playing, playing the gamesmanship game without becoming really disrespectful and without becoming, I don't know, too angry about the whole thing. Like many, many Sabreurs, I've crossed that line a little bit too far a couple of times in the past. But I think... Hopefully, if you learn from that and you realise that actually they did you no good, then that can teach you a bit of perspective. And sometimes keeping a bit of a sense of humour about these things and making a joke out of it can uh, actually have a positive effect on you and on the referee yeah. and uh, on the, the support the behind you. There is brilliant, right? The way it can kind of. I've still lost, mind you. I still lost. Oh well, see, <laughs> as a, a starry-eyed kid, I just saw, I just see the positives. And actually, these days, I'm very fortunate to be in a position where I, you know, I'm the national championships. I'm, I'm in a similar position to you were at the time. And I remember last national championships when we were doing the, the podium and stuff like that. It was just a sea of canary yellow uh, tracksuits, which is synonymous with uh, with Truro uh, Fencing Club. And um, you know, there is so much expertise there. And, and, and so many uh, winners and champions that, uh, that you have. And actually, that's led you quite nicely on to writing a book, which I've powered through recently. And it was such a page turner and something I really, really enjoyed. And we've quoted actually many times um, in, in the last uh, few, few episodes. So where did the inspiration come from? And how was it trying to get all of your, your knowledge and your understanding about the sport into this book? Because this book is almost a kind of fencing bible not only for fencing parents but also for young fencers but even for me i would like to think as, as an elite fencer that could read this and go oh yeah no i get that that's really that's, that's really good and you know we're, we're recommending this to a lot of the parents at, at the club because it's something that, that that i think is as i say almost like a bible for fencing where did the inspiration and, and how tricky or easy was it to get all the information down on paper well, firstly, if you could put that on Amazon reviews, that would be fantastic. Thank you very much. I will do so. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long question with a long answer, to be honest. Uh, firstly, I kind of would like to clarify, it's not a fencing book in the sense of teaching people how to fence. Yeah. It's, it's called From Last to First, A Parent's Guide to Fencing Success. And it was initially, it was supposed to be aimed at parents. And it kind of is trying to give parents a kind of an indication of what the best way to let their kids 
developing fencing is to get the best out of the fen- them as a fencer and as a person. How to recognize good coaches, how to recognize good clubs. Why do you do strength conditioning fencing? What does kind of fencing nutrition look like? How to prepare for competitions? What happens when my kid is scared of competing or loses motivation or gets injured? Or how do I deal with those situations? You know, So it's not really a fencing book in the sense of this is how you come on guard. Yeah, it's much. It's it's a bit more of a kind of. I was going to say a helicopter view, but we're trying to stop helicopter parents. So it's the opposite of it. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I have to give credit for most of the idea to Daniela Norris, who's mm-hmm. the the co-author. Uh, and Daniela is actually the mum of a fencer in Truro, and they've got a very interesting story because uh, Daniela's husband is British. She's Israeli. Her son Roman is born and brought up in France, so he had very many nationalities they were based in france roman was training and as a, as a very young kid um in france and they came over to the truro summer camp and they kind of immediately clicked with the work that we were doing in truro i went and chatted to the mum about truro school because i could see that roman was really keen and had something as talented fencer and truro school have a have a boarding school and they also do a fencing scholarship program which is linked into truro fencing club and our fencing sal is in the grounds of truro school it, um, we lease it from the school, so the club is separate from the school, but we have a really close symbiotic relationship with the school. And they decided to send Roman to boarding school for a year to give it a go and see how it was. And then he came over to the UK, started to train with us. And then eventually the whole family moved to Cornwall. So it's kind of a nice story. And that's how I got to know Daniela. And she's actually a professional author. That's her job. She's a writer. She'd never written anything in the sports world before. And she basically said, you know, having conversations with me as a fencing parent and trying to get this kind of information from me and me trying to get certain information across to her that we want as parents to understand as coaches. She was saying, well, parents don't get this from anywhere. It's really hard to get this information. Why don't you write it down? And I was like, I can't be bothered to write a book. I haven't got time to do that. (laughs) And then it kind of tied in with the time I was starting to travel up and down to London to coach. And I was traveling on the train. Daniele did a load of work. Uh, in kind of getting one of the publishing houses she worked with to agree to, we put a book proposal together to agree to publish this book if we got our act together and produced it. We sat down and put the structure together, but then she would bullet point every chapter. We'd sort of agree what needs to go in the chapter. And then she'd send me an email saying, don't forget the following 35 things. (laughs) Bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. And then I just sat on the train to London writing this book, basically making sure I didn't forget any of Daniela's bullet points. And thankfully, it was at a time when the train, I won't mention the train company, you can all go online and find out that the the trains were consistently delayed by an hour or two every time, sometimes longer. Oh, that train. Yeah, I know that train. These train journeys were interminable, but luckily it meant that I could finish the book on target times. (laughs) So really it was, you know, I have to give a credit for the thinking behind it, initial thought behind it to Daniela. And then I was kind of inspired as I went through. I didn't particularly want to start writing it, honestly. But as I went through it, I got more and more into it and realized, actually, there's a lot of value in this stuff. I know, I know, I know stuff, and Daniela as a parent knows stuff, and all the coaches I talk to about this know stuff that no one has written down before. Because it's a kind of, it's more of a kind of day-to-day human learning rather than technical knowledge. And we're very keen in fencing to put down the technical knowledge, and there's some good technical manuals out there. But the slightly softer skills are a little bit harder to quantify and a little bit, you know, we're a little bit less kind of, motivated to record them for some reason so that was really how it, how it happened and it was at a time when as a coach I'd kind of started to kind of be more analytical of myself as a coach I think so it kind of coincided with that time of you know when you get to a certain age you start to learn a bit more about yourself and why you think in a certain way not just the, not just what you believe and what you think but why that has evolved and you kind of start to understand how your early life has impacted your evolution as a person as a coach as a fence or whatever and so it kind of all was quite serendipitous and, and then the book popped out the other end. And it's, it's the first edition. We're going to hopefully do a second edition quite soon oh, with nice. some changes and some edits and fewer exclamation marks and a few other bits and bobs. And I'd also like to say that John Rhodes, who's a sports psych, had some input into the psych section, which was really helpful, who's a guy I've worked with for many, many years, who's a brilliant guy. And Steve Petrie, who's a strength and conditioning coach, I believe you've come across as well, Ben, and mentioned on the program has put an enormous amount into the strength conditioning section in that book as well so i had so much help from from brilliant people as well i think what's great about it it was a great read to start with and i think that you know it, it is also um something where you know people in lockdown and we've been saying this a lot is a great way for people to look at other aspects of their sporting life 
uh, no matter how big or small it is to them, and a great way for them to continuously learn and, and evolve themselves within the sport they're in. And I, I think that with fencing at the moment, you know, a lot of people spend so much time out there sparring, getting the lessons and, and kind of doing the major things. And, and, and Chris said something fantastic the other day about a Dave Brailsford, former performance director, and what he was saying about marginal gains. And I think right now, when we're in lockdown, it's a really good reason because we've got a lot more time to expand our knowledge. And, you know, reading the book has has helped me, not only as a fencer, not only as a coach, but even just thinking about the way I come across in, in, in many situations. And so right now, I think, people should look at expanding knowledge and do things that they wouldn't usually do. And, and, and it, it, was, it was something that I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And I, and I know I mentioned earlier on that you've done some writing for uh, British Fencing. You come up with a document that you put together about kind of coaching online. What are your kind of top tips at the moment for any kind of coaches or clubs out there that are looking to try and deliver some online sessions? Because ultimately, we don't know how long this is going to take until we go back to what is considered normality within fencing. This could still be another two months before we're all able to, you know, hug and kiss and, and, and you know, and actually do our, our, our usual things and in fencing cells and, you know, shaking hands while sweating and stuff like that. So it could be a long time. But what are your kind of top tips for any club that wants to start delivering online sessions and how do we get that right? Well, first, obviously, I'm looking forward to hugging and kissing you. So but that's <laughs> to be honest i hope it's more than two months away i'm not gonna lie <laughs> so my top tips for online coaching quite quite simple some of them firstly and this sounds very obvious it's about planning the session you know and i know we kind of have rudimentary session plans when we deliver a session but this is about quite detailed planning and you have to think about the restrictions of space so i'm working with a group of fences about we have every session around 25 fences online and they have between a three and a half meter or three meter space in their kitchen and a 25 meter long garden. Now, if I did everything for the person in the 25 meter long garden, everyone else would be a bit messed up. So I have to really focus on what exercises, what, you know, whether it's warm up, whether it's footwork, whether it's technical, whether it's SNC, whatever it might be, what exercises are actually going to be relevant and applicable to the person who's got the least amount of space. So firstly, you have to work with that. The second thing is when you've planned how the session structure is and what the exercise is going to be, run through it yourself because the timing is always different to what you think it's going to be. So if you've got an hour to do the session and you're allowed a 10-minute gap either way, you can be 10 minutes long or short, fine, but just run through the session until you're experienced at doing it. Today we did our 47th Zoom session for Trevor Fencing Club. Wow. So we've now kind of got the hang of you know, how to write the session, how long it should be, how to deliver it, how it should look. So that's the second thing is run through the session yourself. And the third thing is the camera angles. And it sounds really obvious, but check and check again and check again that you, where you position your camera, whether it's your laptop or your phone or a camera, whatever it is, check and check again that your angle is good. So when you do a demonstration or an explanation, people can see you. Very clearly, they can see your feet, they can see your body position, they can see your hand position. And that, you know, I made the mistake early on of I, I set my camera up perfectly for doing demonstrating a head cut. People couldn't see my feet when they were trying to see the footwork. Mm. Or I was doing a core session, I was lying on the floor doing a core exercise and they couldn't see me. So, you know, or they hear your voice. Harder, harder. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I was going, oh gosh, this is really hard. And nobody else was doing anything because they couldn't see me. So, uh, the camera angles and the preparation are absolutely essential. And don't be scared just to have a bit of banter with people. Make it fun, you know. We chuck in a couple of, not every session, but once a week we usually have like a coordination game. You know, nicked a few ideas offline. Keith Cook's done some brilliant stuff on, yeah, on for his club. You know, really simple exercise you can do either with a partner if you're lucky enough to have someone at home that you can do it with. Or if not, stuff that we've done which you can do by yourself. Just kind of juggling two things in one hand, you know, set up a little competition for people to do that. We do the old classic exercise I've, I've developed that you can do with one person. So you're on guard and, you know, the old thing of someone chucks a glove over your head and you lunge and catch it, which almost every kid has done in fencing. So now I've done one where you hold a tennis ball in your non-sword hand and you have to throw the ball and then lunge and catch it. And you have to have the arm straight, not up or down and mm -hmm. just stuff. Like, and then depending on the age group you're working with, you can develop simple kind of fun stuff. And the other thing I've found is that choice reaction stuff works OK online. I was concerned it wouldn't. So, you know, you say, OK, you do a do any preparation when i say one you take over the attack or when i say two you make miss and then attack you make the opponent miss and then attack and you kind of give options so they do a preparation and you go one and then they do it 
And of course, there's a variation in delay between different fences, but it doesn't matter because they just have their own time. They do it in their own time. But then you have to bear in mind, just allow a little bit more time between repetitions. You know, some people have a bit more delay than others. But yeah, basically, if you plan the session carefully with the space constraints in mind, and then you run through it and then you check your angles, you're not going to go too far wrong. You know, you have to think about what's the technical ability and so on of the people I'm working with. But you're not going to go too far wrong. And people are going to, A, appreciate you know, the guys have, that we're working with have thrown themselves into training. Our attendance is way higher now than it was, than it was before lockdown. We've got 25 <laughs> people on there. We have more people doing 100% attendance of sessions than we've ever had before in face-to-face training. So everyone out there, listen, get training. It can be done. Absolutely. It can be done. And it can be useful from a coach perspective. So, okay. You keep people engaged, you keep your club lively and the social side of it and all those things. And the guys have a good time and they try stuff and, you know, all those things. But as a coach, you can find exercises to develop the fences still. And I would, I would hesitate to say you can develop the technical side, but certainly the physical aspects of the sport. And whether that just means coordination, balance, core strength, quality of footwork, all those types of things, you know, the quality of the lunge. We've done loads of lunge power exercises, explosiveness exercises, flexibility, mobility, all that kind of stuff. That is all great foundation stuff for fencing, even if you're an experienced fencer. You know, there's no reason why anyone should come out of lockdown without a stronger core than they went in, right? We've got nothing to do but sit-ups for the next two months, so we may as well do that. <laughs> and we know, we, love, we know how much you love doing sit-ups. I love a good sit-up, then. Sit and twist, sit and twist. Just the one, just the one, man. <laughs> one every day. So, something you mentioned, which sounds really good to me, is decision-making. So, as you said, you know, everybody doing a similar preparation, and then you throw a decision in, and people can respond to that. That's the kind of thing that sounds like it would be really helpful, because it's not just mindlessly doing footwork you know there's there's a decision and there's a purpose behind it which all too often is is lacking in fencing specific and air quotes Mm. you know technical work so having a direction and having something to to go with that is quite good and actually that might be quite a good place to throw in our ask us anything question from ben's flatmate this week which is around what keeps you training through you know these difficult times and why not just slack it off I thought maybe we'd throw that to John and see, <laughs> see, I know you're not still training, but you're keeping fit and you're, you know, you're coaching and actually that might even apply to coaching quite a lot. You know, why not just sit back and, and kind of do nothing as to be honest, my club have done, I haven't had any online coaching. I don't know if they've offered anything and you guys are working really hard. So it's a good question. And the first part is why do I keep personally training? Cause I, I kind of try and keep fit and I've been running five, six times a week and doing S and C that is pure vanity. There's no other reason than vanity. I'm like Ben, except well, I've got no hair, but I'm like Ben. You know, I'm quite vain. So I like to stay looking reasonably okay for my age, at least. So that's the first thing. So that's Not my... that we ever do a vanity contest, the two of us. We're never just sitting there in front of the mirror checking there's, each other out. I say there's not, a big en- there's not a big enough mirror. Is there? <laughs> <laughs> there's no space so, for me then. <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't find it too hard to motivate myself to do my own fitness training because of and I'm not actually even kidding you know I and it's not I mean vanity is a kind of negative word but actually I like to feel good about myself I like to feel good um I like to feel like when I'm coaching the athletes I'm working with some of whom are super super fit like ridiculously fit kids I like to feel like I don't look completely out of place when I'm working with them and I can keep up with them you know Mm -hmm. and also working at senior level fencing's become so athletic and so fast and Sabre as you guys know is so explosive that just giving lessons to someone like Will Deary or James Honeybone or Caitlin Maxwell and Maria Chart, those really, really high-level senior fencers, giving them lessons, you have to be physically capable to move up and down and stay strong and fast. So it's also maintaining your, your strength and speed for that. In terms of why deliver coaching, I think there's, there's a genuine business reason, right? We want the club to stay alive. I want my staff, I've got two full-time coaches as well as me at the club. The other two guys are furloughed, so I'm doing all the coaching. But I want those guys to have jobs when they come back. I want the club to exist. I want us to have members. So we have to keep the members engaged. We can't ask them to keep paying us a ton of money while we're not giving them anything. So we have to give them a product that they're paying for. And thirdly, we owe it to those guys. We're, we're saying to them, we are trying to offer you the best Sabre performance program for cadets and juniors in the UK. And we owe it to them to keep that going. Because if we're saying we're offering the best program, we have to come out the other end of this either at least as good as when we went in or hopefully a bit better and definitely in our view ahead of everyone else you know the competition is be the best at lockdown training 
if we can be the best at lockdown training in Europe or in the world or whatever, we've made some marginal gains against those other cadets and other juniors. And those kids have really engaged in that message and bought into that message and thrown themselves into the training. It's not just about your individual motivation. You have to service the needs of the community that you're working for. You have to run a business, but also you have to provide the service you've promised to provide and say, right, we set ourselves up as providing that program. We have to continue to provide it and there's no choice. We, are, we have to do it. I love I think, that. Yeah, Chris, I agree. Fantas- fantastic answer. Yeah, absolutely. I think that w- w- what everybody kind of out there needs to understand is that, yeah, lockdown's tough. It's really hard. It's not easy. And it's kind of here to stay for the moment in time. And I think a lot of people think because the government have mentioned, you know, six people in the garden or whatever, you know, things are going to return to normal. And so it's OK taking a few extra weeks off and doing nothing. But it's going to be a very drip fed thing going back to sport. Ultimately, Sport does mean a lot of physical contact, potentially transmission rates can be higher. And so returning to fencing in the conventional way that we know it is still going to take a lot longer. And, and this is why I'm, I'm hoping that and Chris is hoping as well that in the community of fencing in the UK, this podcast in some way offers some information to help people stay just physically fit, uh, both mentally um, as well as physically. Um, and, and there's potentially keeping up some technical work as well. And, and it's been a pleasure having John on today, who's been able to kind of give it from the coach's point of view and as someone that, that, that leads a club to a very high level and, and all the things that he's been doing. I thoroughly recommend um, the book uh, that he, he's written um, from last to first, uh, A Parent's Guide to Fencing Success. Um, and I also thoroughly recommend for uh, coaches out there that are thinking about ways to get their club interactive again, is to get on British Fencing and have a look at that document that John's written because it is a fantastic uh, resource for any club or even fencer that wants to deliver sessions online uh, to, to other teammates or, or even to, uh, to other athletes. So I think that, you know, ultimately lockdown is here to stay and let's try and make the most of it while we can. But John, thank you so much uh, for your time today. I just want to say quickly while we're signing off I found a new motivational sentence this week which is how good can I be and I'm a bit like John I don't find it hard to motivate myself to keep fit but sometimes some of the technical training especially with no end dates in sight it can be quite hard and that's you know how good can I be is is something that I really like um, especially knowing that I'm aiming for higher level and more selections. My favorite saying at the moment is tough times don't last tough teams do Nice. Uh, yeah, that's good. That's really good. We had a quote off the other day. We just kept going back to the <laughs> tennis like this. The um, best one is the, sorry, I've got to go one more. It's got to be one more quote. Yeah. Muhammad Ali quote. I don't start counting my shit ups till they hurt because they're the only ones that count. Nice. Uh, that, yeah that's very good <laughs> I've, cer- I've certainly been there this week let's put it that way yeah that's great and on that note you know if you're enjoying listening to our episodes do subscribe review and get in touch you can find us on google apple spotify youtube and transistor and we're on twitter as well aren't we ben we are we are at the fenced in podcast so drop us any uh, messages there or even just get in contact if there's any questions you've got as well fire them over to us or as john's been on the uh, on the podcast this week fire questions over to him as well um and next week we'll also be featuring another guest we're not going to give you any uh clues hopefully it'll be a surprise next week uh john thank you so much and that's it from us thank you very much guys it's been a pleasure been great really enjoyed it cheers the fenced in podcast has been created in association with j4g design your one-stop user experience agency for all things digital, websites, graphic design, and technical support.